All right, so um, I've given back everything that I had, so everything graded so far. Also, if you now go on to D2L and look at grades, it will now show your current grade total average weighted grade. I just activated that this morning. So it is actually visible to you now and that might help show you know where you are if you didn't do well on something. Um, honestly well over the well over half the class is running over 80 percent. So and a good chunk of the class is running over 90 percent. So take a look at what you've got. If you didn't do necessarily do well on one assignment it doesn't uh, doesn't necessarily severely impact your grade. What will right now is if you've missed an assignment. So if you have not turned in, if you didn't turn in a homework, if you, didn't, if you missed one of the labs, right now it's a zero and it's hurting you. And that will reflect in your grade until the end of the semester once we complete all the homeworks. If you didn't do one of the five, which is dropped, then it will go away then, but I don't drop it until the end of the semester. So right now it's going to make your grade look worse than it is, but keep in mind if you've only missed one lab, one homework, did poorly on one exam, that does get, that does get dropped at the end of the semester. Uh, in terms of the exam, um, I posted a little bit about it if you happen to look up on D2L or look up grades over the weekend. Um, Grades were a little lower than I would have expected and part of that, I, I blame myself for part of it because I did not make, a, I noticed only one or two people were ready with your note sheets. And I should have emphasized that the week before. If you actually go and look at your grade, I've added eight points to all the grades. So, I'm sorry? As of this morning. So what grade is written on your exam, you, what's actually recorded in D2L is eight points higher. So I did do that. I normally would have added a few points. I might have added a couple, three or four, be figuring there were a couple bad questions or something. Normally I don't add that many, but because I did not make a big deal about that, um, I wanted to add a little bit extra to that. So that brought the average up to closer to a 75 to 80 percent, which is a little more, a little more typical of what the exams will, exams should get. So that way you can hopefully for the next one, make sure those sheets are available up on D2L for you. So when we take exam two in a couple of weeks, the, the key points for chapters five, six, and then 15 and 16, which are the next ones we're covering, um, are up there. You can print those out and you're allowed to write any notes you want on them. They have to be handwritten. Don't go in and edit them and try to edit and type stuff in. I want them handwritten is the only thing so you're not just typing in or including too much extra stuff. But any notes you want to remind yourself, you can write on those. So. Well, I mean, you can write to the sides, you can make notes in the margins. I mean, I'm not expecting you to copy everything from the textbook right. to it. But if you want to make it, oh, I want to remember this, I know he's going to ask about that and I'm going to forget. That's the whole idea for them and that's why I think the grades were a little lower on this first one and, and why I made a bigger adjustment. Sorry. Okay. Um, as long as you let me know in advance, remind me in advance, send me an email, we can make arrangements that I can put it in either to have you take it right before. I don't know if you're available before or you're not going to. Okay, um, then I can work out something to either get you a different exam because you'll unless you'll be back the following Monday. Yes. Because you could probably take it. I can set it up at the t if, as long as I were set it up in advance. I can probably have you take it like in the test center. Then I just can't do it once I give it back. Obviously, yeah. I can't have somebody go make up the go make up the exam. So and it's a lot easier for me if I don't have to make up a whole new ex whole whole second different exam. So. 
Um, just remind me about it. Send me an email, and I can make arrangements for you to take it. You know, that following, the following Monday or something. So as long as you have it done before class time, we're okay. we're good. Um, in terms of of the first exam, if you didn't do well, don't throw it away or shred it because I will use that to make up questions for the final. To take the question. In fact, I won't. I can't tell you exactly how many. But I will be taking some of those questions word for word exactly will be part of the cumulative portion of the final. And the final will be mostly cumulative because we have four exams which run right up to the last unit. So most of the final exam I try to take from the previous exams to help you focus your studying. So you don't need to go back and study everything we went over all semester. But you need to review what I covered in each, on each exam. So I do recommend looking, trying to figure out if you got something wrong. If I didn't, like on the essays, I tried to make comments on them as to maybe where you went wrong on it. Um, obviously in the true-false, I did the remarked either true-false, sorry, the multiple choice, they're marked correct or incorrect. Uh, so do look if you can find the right answer. Don't spend hours searching for them. I will go over those at some point at the end of the semester. If you have a question on one or two and you want to ask me before or after class, I'll be happy to do those. But what I won't do is just go over and help. If you miss 10 of them, I'm not just going to go over and give you the answers right now. I will at the end of the semester, but I recommend that you look at them because that will help you review the material and be ready for the, for the final coming up in way off now, right? But coming up in uh, December. So um, who else came in later? I'm sorry. Yeah, sure. I'd prefer it typed if you've already handwritten this one, go ahead. Okay. But I do prefer that to be typed. So who did come in? That's Bailey and Riley. Bailey, there's that one for you. Yes, sir. Do you, want to hand or do you, you can just submit it up on, uh, you can, you're welcome to, uh, Riley. Okay. Uh, you're welcome to submit it up on um, D2L. So it's due today, but you've got until 6 o'clock tomorrow morning if you're submitting it up on D2L. So if you have if you got it finished, go ahead and submit it now. I noticed I saw about three or four of them, I think it was this morning, are already up there. So a number of people have already done it. That's great. If you're turning in a copy, you can turn that in after class on the way out. But you do have till 6 o'clock in the morning tomorrow to submit it. So, yeah, but whatever way you prefer. If you prefer to turn in a physical copy, you can do that. If you prefer just to, obviously you'd have to have that now. but. Uh, that way you get a little bit of extra time if you prefer to submit it up on so D2L. Yeah, like pretty much any assignment can be submitted, other than an exam, any assignment can be submitted up on D2L. Well, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, oh. like if we type it and then print it out and hand it to you, like a hard copy, yeah. do we like that better? Okay. That either way is fine. Okay. Most of the time when you submit them up on D2L, because I get a mixture, I probably just print them all out and we'll grade them. But if you want to, if you can't print it at the time or something, you have that option. So you can always turn it in as well. But yeah, you have the option. It's not required to submit them there. It's a convenience and it gives you a little bit of extra time. So you have that rest of the day to finish anything up. So that's the one that's due today is the article review. So um, I get that in today. Um, Homework two is due on the 4th of October. I gave those out last time. And second solar observations. I'll be looking at those again in October the 11th. And then the second exam is scheduled for October the 11th as well. And that will cover chapters five, which we're done with. Chapter six, which we're doing today and this week. 
and then hopefully we'll be able to get started on 15 and 16. Probably Thursday, um, most likely we'll get through 6 and get to get started on 15 and 16 this week so we can get a little bit of a jump start on that for the coming, for the coming week. Um, so otherwise, I said I did release grades up there so you can see where you're standing. So you will be able to follow those. Those will update as I grade anything else now up on uh, D2L. So you can follow along, see where your grade stands. The thing that's going to hurt you right now is if you've missed an assignment. So if you didn't do a homework or something, it's a zero right now and it averages in at the end of the semester, it'll go away. So I'm sorry, yeah? I'm so, uh, can you show me after class? I'll take a look at it. It's quite, but it's possible. I try not to, but <laughs> mistakes happen. So um, yeah, just let me know after class. I can take a look at that. So do go take a, do take a look at those. Um, you can see where your grade is standing right now. And as I said, overall, class is doing pretty well. So yeah? Do you drop one solar observation? I do not drop a solar observation. Um, at this point, no, but it's, it's only five points out of 160. So in the end, That's it's not going to—it's—it's it's, going to look bad now. But I mean, it's only out of five. It's not going to really—it's not going to make any difference in the long run. If you have one missing, even uh, technically, you could do all three of them and still get a 90%. If you did perfect, you could miss all three of them and you could still get a 90%. So it's not going—it's only going to hurt, you know, a, a tiny, a tiny fraction. So, and you can make, I mean, the rest of it will overwhelm missing one of them. Other questions? Alrighty, well, let's go ahead and get started then. So, we have our picture of the day for today. Nice, complicated picture, but this is one that they do about every, every three months. It kind of shows what's going on in the sky over three months worth. This is for the fall. And unfortunately, it would be nice if it started a little bit earlier because this actually shows September, October, and November. And we're less than, a, less than a week away from October now. So some of this stuff is already done. But some of the things that occurred in early September, so if you wanted to look for. And what it shows is, again, going September through the end of November there, and then showing from close to Earth to further out in space. So things that are going on here are very close to us, such as the International Space Station, when that's visible. Uh, that's actually, there's a website you can search for when is the International Space Station visible. You can actually look for when it will fly overhead at your area. So when it's going to be overhead in York, you can find out when it's going to be up high in the sky. And you can watch it. It'll actually move across. You know, you'll be able to watch it over the course. I'm sorry? You'll see a, a light. You'll see it look. It might look like a plane almost, but it'll go across and it'll be going. But if you know when to, if you look up when to look for it from your location, you can actually you can very it's very easy to see. I mean, it's bright enough to be able to be seen easily. So that's what starts out in there. Then of course we have the moon. A whole bunch of stuff with the moon. Uh, some of it has already passed. So moon near Mercury earlier this month. The moon near Mars a week or so ago. Um, but coming in up October, we're going to have a couple days where the moon is going to pass near Jupiter and Saturn. So kind of helps to identify those objects. If you're not, uh, not familiar with them, October 10th and 14th. And then the moon near Mars in, this, on no, in the middle of November. So the moon and the planets all follow roughly the same path in the sky. 
So they do, as the moon moves through the sky faster because it's closer to us, it does pass near a lot of these other objects. You'll see that from time to time when the moon happens to pass relatively close to a planet. We don't have this month, this, this, uh, this season any occultations where the moon is going to pass directly in front of them. So in this case, the moon may, may be a couple of moon diameters away, maybe a couple degrees away from those objects, but relatively close. You'll see the moon with a relatively bright object next to it on those days. Uh, the other things further away, there's a comet mentioned there, uh, different planets, what planets are visible. And right now, in the early evening, we've got a whole bunch of planets visible. So that's Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn all in the first half of the night. So early evening, midnight, early, very earliest morning hours, right after midnight, those objects will be visible. And you can see those. And there are you know, apps for your smartphone that will actually match up the sky. You can kind of hold them up and it will identify. You know, here's what this object is. What is this object? And here's what it is. It will tell you, oh, that's Jupiter, or that's this bright star, or that's some other object, or it's the moon. But hopefully you figured out which one is the moon in any case. But it will tell you what that object is. So if you're not sure and you see some bright object, there's some nice apps like that that you can get that will you know, help you to identify which bright object you're actually seeing. Venus, if you didn't get to see, it's dropping really quick now and it'll be gone in another couple of weeks. It's getting really low in the sky in the evening, right after sunset. You'll still see a bright object there, but if you notice each day it'll get closer and closer and closer to the sun. And it will then flip over and by, so during October it'll be really hard to see. Uh, back once we get into November it'll actually be in the morning sky right before sunrise. So if you're an early riser, you have a chance to go ahead and see it. It'll be up high by the end of the semester. It'll be up nice, visible in the morning, in the morning sky. So that will be way off over here, which they're not showing on this one. But Venus in the evening sky right now, but that is dropping really quick. And then there's a couple meteor showers that are visible. So the Draconids up high in the northern sky on, on October, early October and the Orionids uh, in later October. So there are a couple meteor showers that are visible as well. What it is, it's meant to be a sky, the sky, what's still coming up over the next few months at a quick glance, got all of that information there. Questions? Alrighty, well let's go ahead out to telescopes, which is our section for today. Come on, there we go. And we're going to look at telescopes in a couple different parts. We're going to look at optical telescopes. That's what telescopes have been since they were first invented back in the early 1600s until every telescope until the 1930s was an optical telescope looking at visible light, the light that we see with every day. We'll also look in other sections of the lecture, we will look at radio telescopes which observe with radio waves, look like great big satellite dishes, some of them. Uh, and then we'll look at the end, we'll look at space telescopes. Telescopes that we put up in space to observe infrared, ultraviolet, x-rays, gamma rays, other types of radiation that we can't see from the surface of the Earth. So, but first of all, the big part of this, I want to go through optical telescopes because those are the kind you've mostly heard about, seen, and what they are is, you know, what is a telescope, right? I think we, I hope we all know, 
It's a device to observe any astronomical object. So this is an example of a telescope uh, that would have a big mirror down at the end in this long big tube and then would collect light and bring it to a focus. That's the whole idea is that, that it gathers light and brings it to a focus. The advantage of a telescope over just using your eye is that it's a lot bigger. Right? The pupil of your eye is what collects the light. And even when it's dilated real big, you know, it's still only a few millimeters in size. So it's only can collect the light coming through that. You can have telescopes here. I don't remember the size of this one example, but that's, this may be, you know, 15 or so inches across. I'm just guessing by the size, 15 to 20 inches across. That's a lot bigger. Right? That can collect a lot more light in that area than your eye can possibly see. So that's one example. It's one of the things that telescopes can do. Now you'll see that it's just not one telescope. There's another telescope. There's actually a whole bunch of telescopes here. Uh, the smaller ones, right, the bigger the telescope, the smaller the part of the sky you see. So if you wanted to try to point this to find something, it can be very hard to identify your object. Right? You're trying to point to this tiny portion of the sky, and if it's not a really bright moon, not too hard to find. Planets, not too bad. But when you start looking for fainter objects it's hard, and that you can't see yourself, it's hard to line them up. So these are what we call a finder scope. They see a much bigger area of the sky, so you can get your object centered here, and they're all aligned properly so that when you center an object in one of them, then it becomes visible in the other. So when you get it all lined up there, in the smallest one of these, generally first, you'd find the object and you'd then be able to just look through your other telescope and maybe make some minor adjustments to get everything uh, centered. So this is just an example of an optical telescope. And for right now, we're just talking about light, but you could use telescopes to look at infrared waves, ultraviolet waves, x-rays, gamma rays, and radio waves that we'll look at later on. And the other thing that it does is it allows us to observe things that are fainter, things that you can't even see. You can look out there at an empty part of the sky where your eye sees nothing, and you can point a telescope there, and all of a sudden there will be dozens and dozens of objects there because your eye can only see things that are, that your eye, enough bright, that are bright enough. This collects more light, so you're able to see things that are fainter. So it allows for seeing fainter objects than you otherwise would be able to. Now that's a slightly more modern telescope. These are some older telescopes. Uh, the telescope itself was actually invented in 1608. And I emphasize there, not by Galileo. Uh, it was actually invented by a Dutch optician. So it was the first uh, notice that we have of telescopes being invented. These are Galileo's telescopes, two of his early telescopes out in a museum over in Italy. And what it, ha what it has is a small lens up here and another lens down on the other end. And they weren't very big. Galileo's telescopes were less than an inch lenses. He ground all the, he heard about this discovery and he made his own lenses, ground his own lenses from pieces of glass. And they were only you know, half an inch, three quarters of an inch in size. Tiny compared to some of the telescopes we'll look at. But much, much bigger than the pupil of your eye. So it could see a lot more detail. And that's why we talked about Galileo. He was able to see the moons of Jupiter. You can't see them with your eye. He was able to see the rings of Saturn. Well, sort of. You can't see those with your eye. Um, he was able to see 
um, the phases of Venus. Venus is there. You can see Venus, but you can't see that it's going through phases like you do with the moon. It's too far away, but yet when you use a telescope, you're able to see that. So Galileo did not invent the telescope. He, was, he heard about it a couple years later. Uh, this was 1608, and he made his own in 1610. But he was the first that we know of to observe the sky. Maybe, who's to say someone else didn't observe the sky? But he is the first that we, records we have of recorded observations. So he gets the credit for it because he was the first to actually give us records of what he saw. Doesn't mean that this Dutch optician who invented it didn't point at this guy and say, oh, moon looks cool, and then went on to do something else. But if he never recorded anything, we don't have any records of what was done. So there could have been other, others that observed, but we give Galileo the credit because he was the first to actually record and publish his observations of the sky. Now, telescopes, optical telescopes, and when I'm talking about telescopes in this first section, I do mean telescopes with visible light, stuff that we see every day. But optical telescopes come in two types, and I know your slides won't show that picture. I adjusted it because when I did these as a uh, lecture, when I recorded them as a lecture video, I drew the pictures in. But uh, I've got a couple in here just to show you that there are two types. There is a refracting telescope. That's what Galileo made. Refracting telescopes use lenses. And then there's a reflecting telescope that uses mirrors. So either one of them can be used to bring light to a focus. So the example here, this is a refracting telescope. It's got one lens up here and a second lens down here. So what the lens does is bends the light. So as it comes through here, you have light coming through. It's bent, so it comes to a focus. And then it comes down to the eyepiece which actually adjusts just the image, another small lens that adjusts the image and makes it visible to you. So you can then see, you can then see that. These are the type that Galileo had. There's one small lens up there, one small lens down there, and that would bring the light to a focus so Galileo could look through one side and be able to see the, the distant objects. However, uh, what he did, I'm sorry, uh, but so these are the simplest type of telescopes. A refracting telescope with lenses is the very easiest to build because all you need is a little lens and a little lens. If you're not a professional lens grinder or capable of have the devices that, you can buy little lenses, put them in a tube, and you can make your own small telescope very easily. How good it will be will depend on the quality of the lenses. Galileo's weren't all that great, but we're still, we can be talked about what he was able to see. The other type is a reflecting telescope. This is what we use today for the most part. A reflecting telescope uses a mirror. So it has a large mirror down here, and then the light comes in, bounces off a mirror. Now this is not like a bathroom mirror, which is nice and flat. It's a curved mirror. So it actually brings the images to a focus. So the light rays that come here bounce off at one angle. These come off at another angle, and they go to some focus up here. Now, the difference here, refracting telescope, nice, you just look through it and you can see the object. Reflecting telescope, you have to find some way to get the light because when you're bouncing off a mirror, well, the light comes in from this distant object and it heads right back out into space. That doesn't do you a lot of good. I could put my head right here, I could put some kind of my head or detector right here, but then I'm blocking the light, right? If I put my head in that end to look at it, then my, my big old head is blocking the light that's trying to come into that telescope. So what they do is use additional mirrors to, to 
change the path of the light. So the light comes in, bounces off the main mirror, but then there's a smaller mirror here that then allows that to come out to an eyepiece where you're able to see it. Now there's a couple t styles of how you can do this. One example is shown here where it goes off to the side. One example here again has that secondary mirror and bounces it straight back down. So it's similar to a refracting telescope in terms of design that you're looking through the bottom end. Which way you do it depends really on what you want to do with the telescope. Uh, for the most part, astronomers don't look through their telescopes. And so we think of a telescope, you think of somebody standing there looking through it. That's not what astronomers do. And in the next section, we'll talk about the different detectors that are used that are you know, better than the human eye. But these are the two types. You can have a refle reflecting or a refracting telescope. Refracting uses lenses, reflecting uses mirrors. And then we can look at the different, the, the way we can bring that light to a focus. Now here I'm going to focus on, concentrate on, I should say, since I'm talking about focus, let's not do two focuses. Um, reflecting telescopes. These are all with mirrors. A refracting telescope is much simpler. There, aren't, there isn't many, much variety. You have a big lens, you have a small lens, the light passes straight through it. I can't do much else with it. I can't really turn any, turn the light, make the light path change unless I'm adding mirrors in. So three type that we look at is first of all the prime focus, which is the image up at the top. And that just means that the light comes in, bounces off the curved mirror, and comes back to a focal point. So your light comes to a focus right here. And I already mentioned a couple problems with that. Right? Put my head there to look at that image, put some kind of device there to detect it, I'm blocking the light. Now, for a small telescope, that means this won't work. If I want a telescope that has a lens that's you know, six inches inside, in size, and I put my head over it, I'm blocking pretty much all the light. However, when we look at massive astronomical telescopes that I'll show you some pictures of coming up, these telescopes get gigantic. You have things that are three meters, four meters in size. So four meters, about 12, 13 feet across. It's not so bad to put something in there to block the, that blocks a little bit of the light but not all of it. Even with a small telescope, you can make small telescopes and put a little mirror in there, but there actually are large telescopes that have been used that have a observing cage at the center up there. So the astronomer, not, not done much anymore, but you know, back 50, 50, 60 years ago, there were some large telescopes where there was an observing cage and the observer could ride with the telescope all night up at the, fo up at the focus. Yes, they'd be blocking some light, but most of the light is still coming around them. When you're talking about something that is you know, 15 feet across, I'm not blocking all that much with a little cage. It's not going to be a nice spacious cage, but I'm not blocking all that much. Nowadays, it's not done that way very often. It typically has some kind of detector, and the observer gets to sit in a nice warm control room, drinking their coffee while they're watching the images on a computer. So astronomers now really don't, look, don't really ride in that anymore and really don't even look through directly through their telescopes. But prime focus is one example. You don't need anything else. Mirror, bring it to a focus, put something there to detect it, whether it be your eye, if it's a large enough telescope, or if it's some kind of detecting device that we'll look at coming up. The other two that I wanted to mention are the Cassegrain focus. These are the ones that are, most are often used now, too. The Cassegrain focus brings, has the mirror here, has a secondary mirror, which is also curved. So the light comes in, bounces off the mirror, 
bounces off this mirror, and then comes back down through a hole in the mirror. Hole in the mirror means it's not collecting all the light that it could, but if you've got to put another mirror here anyway, no light was going to hit that in the first place, so it doesn't really matter. You're not blocking anything because it's already blocked up here, so you can then bounce the light and bring it through here and allow the observer or a detector to be right down at the base of the instrument. That's kind of nice because when you talk about mirrors that are getting to be the size of this room, that's a lot of glass. Glass isn't light, right? especially when you have glass that's you know, a foot thick and it's you know, feet, many feet wide. That's a very heavy piece of glass. So if you're putting a detector down there, you're not really adding much extra weight to it. So if you have to move the telescope, it makes it a lot easier. So Cassegrain is one where it comes back straight through. If you don't want to do that, you can also do a Newtonian focus given to us by Isaac Newton, one that Newton came up with. And that, in this case, you actually use a straight mirror, but you angle it. So the light comes in just as it did here and heads back out in each of these cases. In this case, you angle the mirror and you have it come out to the side. It really depends on what you want to do. Many telescopes, especially large astronomical professional telescopes, can have multiple versions. You can have multiple ways to collect the light. It's not necessarily just one of these. It might have this option or this option or this option or it might have a couple of those options depending on the specific telescope. So various ways. The whole idea is to get the light someplace where you can observe it. Whether it's putting a small detector up here, right, a camera up here, uh, or putting it down at the edge of the, at the end of the device by the mirror or putting it up on the side. Now there are some cases where these are more or less useful. Um, if you want to observe something that's straight overhead with a big telescope and you have this kind of mirror, right, you're looking straight overhead and if that means you might be lying on the floor to look through the, right, if your telescope goes down to here at its lowest, you might be lying on the floor to look up through the eyepiece. If you can imagine this pointing straight up, you've got to be underneath it. It might not be up at, you know, eye level. So, that's one disadvantage here. This one is nice in that you can adjust that to eye level a little better. Even if the telescope's pointing straight up and down, the eyepiece could then be closer to your eye level. Makes it a lot easier. What it makes it harder with is putting a detector there. If I put a camera here, I'm putting a lot of weight, especially a small telescope that's not right on the axis of the telescope the, where the main weight is distributed. So it kind of pushes an extra force on the telescope trying to tilt it a little bit. So there are advantages and disadvantages to any of these. There's not, not one that's perfect. That's why otherwise we'd just quit and use one, right? We'd just say, well, this one works 1,000 times better than why are we going to bother with these other two. There are advantages and disadvantages to each of them. Now, telescopes have three powers. There are three things that a telescope can do. Two of these are really important. The other is not very important. So telescopes have light gathering power. The ability to gather more light than your eye can possibly see. That's great because it allows you to see fainter objects. So we can point, again, point that telescope at an, a part of the sky that looks blank and all of a sudden you're seeing things that weren't there, that, that were there, but you couldn't see with your eye. So it allows you to see uh, fainter objects. So a larger mirror is better. Why do astronomers keep building larger and larger telescopes? Uh, you know, they started out, Galileo's were less than an inch in size. Then we went to a couple inches. Then you started going to feet. 
And now there are telescopes that we'll look at that are you know, 10, 12 meters in size. It's meters about a yard if you're not good with metric. So you know, talking 30, 40 feet across. You know, that wouldn't fit in this room. If we had something 40 feet across, that's not going to fit in this room. So that's tremendous in size. And that's the whole idea. The bigger you make this, the fainter you can see. And I say here, it depends on the square of the size. It depends on the area of the telescope. Area of a circle is pi r squared. Right? So the square, as that telescope gets bigger, you can see fainter and fainter objects because the collecting area that you're using to gather the light has gone from the size of your pupil, a couple millimeters, to being many meters in size. It's gotten a lot larger. So we can see things that are many, many times fainter than we would otherwise have been able to see. So light gathering power is a very important one to astronomers because it allows us to see objects that are fainter. So we can now see things that are much fainter than we could ever see before. Things that would not be possible would not have been visible to Galileo. Right? Galileo could see things with his telescope that weren't visible to the eye, but now we can see far things that are far fainter than what Galileo could see or far fainter than what we could even see 50 years ago through telescopes because the telescopes have gotten bigger and bigger. The other one is the resolving power. The resolving power is the ability to see fine detail. So as you, as you get closer to something, you can start to see more detail in it. Right? If you're far away, it might just look like a little dot. Right? Have the clock out in the distance. If we bring that clock further and further away, get far enough away, you might see a little dot out there, but you're not going to be able to distinguish it. As it gets closer, you can see more detail. Well, we can't bring astronomical objects closer to us directly. I can't go get a star and let's bring it closer to see all the detail. We can't, but we can make bigger and bigger telescopes. So if we make bigger telescopes, that will also increase the resolving power. You'll be able to see more detail. Um, if you have really good eyesight, if you look at the Big Dipper, the star in the bend is actually two stars really close together. Even with my glasses, I can't tell. But somebody who has really, really good eyesight can actually sometimes distinguish that as being two stars. Look at it with a small telescope, tiny telescope, pair of binoculars. You don't need much. You can easily see that there's two stars close together there. That's an example of what I mean by resolving power. Your eye, for the most part, for most of us, certainly if I take off my glasses, I would not be able to dis distinguish it. I'd have fun trying to find the Big Dipper. Um, but when you get a little more, when you get to higher resolution, you can see more detail. So that means we can see more detail in planets. If we look at a planet through a telescope, a larger telescope is going to show us more detail. A nebula, a cloud of gas, anything else that we look at, we're going to see far more detail with a larger telescope. So a larger telescope will have a smaller resolution, which is better. Small numbers for resolution are better. Large numbers for light gathering power are better. But they both depend on the size of the telescope. Big telescope better. So why, again, why do astronomers keep building bigger and bigger telescopes? Because it increases their light gathering power and it increases their resolving power. They're better able to see both, they're better able to see fainter objects and they can see more detail in objects than you possibly can see with a smaller telescope. The last one is the unimportant one. That's the magnifying power. If you're looking at buying a telescope, that's the least important thing to look at. In fact, if you're looking at a telescope that advertises 250 times magnification, it's not the telescope to buy because 
it's emphasizing something that really isn't important. The things that are important for being able to see things are how much light you're gathering, which is how big your telescope is, and how much detail you can see. Now, this is also kind of limited by the atmosphere, so really it comes down to this one. It comes down to the light gathering power. So if you're going to buy a telescope, you want to buy the biggest one you can get if you really want to see more detail, but you also want to buy the biggest one you'll actually use. Right? If you're wealthy and you can afford to buy a giant telescope, but it takes you, you know, an hour to get it set up, how often are you going to use it? You're probably not. So uh, not use it as much, unless you really get into it, in which case you, you may. So you want to kind of look at that as a trade-off. Maybe you can afford a 20-inch telescope, but because it takes you all the time to set it up, whereas you can go on Amazon and buy a three or four-inch telescope that just sits on a table. You put it on a table, plop it down, and you can look. That takes you know a couple minutes to set up for like 50 bucks. Not so bad, not 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 out of range, and a good thing to start with because you'll use it. But the magnification doesn't matter. Because what it depends on is two things. It depends on the focal length of the mirror or lens that you're using, how long it takes to bring that to a focus, and the focal length of the eyepiece. That means I, can cha- I can't change the focal length of the lens. Once I make the lens, it's got some number. But I can change the eyepiece. I can pop out one eyepiece, put another eyepiece in, and I can change the magnification. So I can get something that's a higher magnification very easily, so you don't want to look at just what this is doing. The other thing is, is that increasing the magnification does not help with these two. It doesn't gather any more light, and it doesn't give you any more resolution. So if it was a blurry image, if you couldn't distinguish two things together at a low magnification, if you couldn't separate them, a higher magnification isn't going to increase that. It's not increasing the resolving power of your telescope. It's just making something small and blurry look big and blurry. So you do want to, I mean, sometimes a magnification is nice, but it's, it's the least important of these. It also doesn't gather any more light. So if it's only getting so much light and you look at your telescope and you have this nice, small, bright image of Saturn, and you put a higher magnification eyepiece in, you'll get a bigger image of Saturn. But you only had that same amount of light, so now that light is spread off over more and it's going to get fainter. If you put an even higher magnification, it's going to get fainter, and it gets to the point where you can't even see the object because you've magnified it so much, but you haven't added any more light to it. So magnification is easy to change, and it really doesn't change the other two things, which are what are really important when you're looking at telescopes. So three powers. First two are the most important, and the last one is really not very important in terms of uh, looking at a telescope. So if you're looking at a telescope at a department store or something and it says, oh, 250 times magnification or 100 times magnification, it's not really what you want to look at. And you can get things that are, if you really want a telescope, you can get things that are relatively inexpensive. You know, less than, easily less than $100 online. I mean, there's very easy ones to see there. All right, so some of the limitations of telescopes. You know, what, is, what is the limitation to these? Well, one of the big ones for refracting telescopes, anything with a lens in it, is that lenses act like prisms. If you put a prism in front of something, it takes the light and bends it into the colors of the rainbow. Cool, but that messes up your light when you're looking at something in astronomy. Because really the top of this lens is like a little prism. The bottom of this lens is again like a little prism. So this is what we call chromatic aberration. 
It's separating the light by its colors. So it's a distortion of color in the, in the telescope. So what it means is that when the light comes through here, you can focus the red light focuses here and the blue light focuses here. So where am I going to look? If I look here, I'm going to get the red image focused nicely, but I'm going to get a big blue halo around it because the blue light is out of focus. If I go to the green, then I'm going to get the green focused and the other stuff off around it. And if I go to the blue, I'm going to see a nice focused blue image, but I'm going to have a red halo around it. So none of these work really well. This is one of the, one of the reasons that we don't use refracting telescopes as much anymore because they do all have this anytime you have a lens. There are some ways to minimize it. You can put multiple telescopes together. Or multiple telescopes, multiple lenses together, and you can kind of adjust this and minimize the amount of the shift, but you can't get rid of it completely. There's always going to be some uh, distortion here when you're using a refracting telescope. And in fact, the last refracting telescope, large professional one that was built, had a lens that was about 40 inches in size, about a meter. So a little over a yard, three feet, a little over three feet. That's how big the lens was. That was finished in the late 1800s, late 1890s. There has not been another larger telescope, refracting telescope, built since then. Why not? We could. I could we could probably build one now that was twice as big easily, but that's still going to be dwarfed by the reflecting telescopes that we are able to build. And again, one of the problems is this, but another prom- problem is the limited size. If we want to build a telescope, I have to be able to have some kind of thing. I can't just have a lens floating out there in, in the a- atmosphere. I have to have some way to support it. For a mirror, that's really nice. If I'm looking at a mirror, let me see. I can support things from behind because the light doesn't pass through it. Let me go back to the one here. You know, I, can put, I can put support right around and right behind it so I can support a heavier lens. I can build something strong around it. If I want to support a lens, I can't. If I put something behind it, I'm blocking all the light. The light has to be able to pass through the lens so I can only support it around the edges. Now, if your lens is only a few inches in size, that's no big deal. If your lens is a meter in size, you can start to imagine that that glass isn't just, you know, wafer thin at the center. It's thick. You know, that glass may be a foot thick at the center and glass is heavy. So that will not, that will be a problem with being able to support it. We can only support it around the edges. If you tried to make a lens the size of this room, right, could we probably design one? Maybe. We could probably make it. But how are you going to hold it up? And gravity is going to be trying to pull it down and distort it. And once you distort the shape of the lens, you throw off your whole image. So there is a limitation to the size because you've got to be able to support the telescope and move the telescope. You've got to be able to turn the telescope to look at a different object. The other thing that is a problem, another limitation that isn't a pl- these two are part of the telescope itself. This is not. This is actually what we call seeing. When astronomers talk about seeing, they're talking about how clear the atmosphere is. So let me put an image of that up here. When the light waves here show nice flat waves, they're coming from some distant object out in space. They're just nice, straight, flat waves all coming in straight. However, when they come through the atmosphere, Our atmosphere isn't nice and steady. It's got currents in it and it distorts those waves. So when the wave comes down to to Earth, instead of being nice and straight and perfectly flat, it's all distorted. That's not how they started out, but that's what our atmosphere did to them. 
So our atmosphere has distorted them. The more turbulent the atmosphere is, the more distortion we get. So the more turbulence you get here. So if you have a telescope up here above the atmosphere, it doesn't have any problems with that. It can see it just see everything just fine because it doesn't have to look through the atmosphere. But any telescope down on the ground, whether it be a small telescope in your backyard or a large telescope that a professional astronomer is using is going to have this problem. And what that does is that causes difficulties with you know, how much detail you can see. Everything gets blurred together because your object, say we're looking at a star, is jumping around. It appears to be in one place one second and a second later it's moved a little bit. It hasn't moved, but the light path it's taking makes it appear to move. So we call this, sometimes we see this, I call it seeing, but you see it when you go look at stars as twinkling. If you ever look at a star and you see it twinkling and jumping, that's what it's doing. It's really changing its position back and forth. Now stars don't twinkle. Right? No matter what we see, we say they twinkle, it's only because of the atmosphere. If you go to the moon and look at stars, they're going to come, they're going to be all just bright and steady, just shining there. They're not going to be, they're not going to have that twinkling effect. That's only stars here on Earth or any place you're looking through an atmosphere. If you don't have to look through the atmosphere, you don't have to worry about that. So the seeing is, if seeing is good, astronomer would say good seeing is when the atmosphere is relatively stable and the stars don't twinkle very much. Poor seeing would mean atmosphere is really unstable and the stars and the waves are uh, all over the place and the stars are twinkling and jumping around like crazy. So if you go look at the stars on a hot summer night, that's when you see the twinkling. Atmosphere is really unstable, really warm, uh, and it's jumping all over the place. That's when you're going to see the stars twinkling. That's the worst time to try to observe, especially for a professional astronomer. If you're looking at on a nice cold winter night, then the stars are much more stable. That's better seeing. The atmosphere, there's still some turbulence, but it's a lot less on that nice cold winter night. And you'll notice that the stars seem a lot steadier in the winter than they do on the, in the summer. Of course, you know, if you just have a small telescope you're putting out in the backyard on that nice, you know, degree night, nice night when it's in the single digits is not probably the night you want to go put your telescope out and go look at it. Whereas the nice warm summer night where it's 70 degrees, 70 or 80 degrees, yeah, I want to do it, but that's when things are jumping around more. Of course, as I said, astronomers not looking through their telescopes have little detectors there and they can sit in the nice warm control room, so it doesn't matter what the temperature is outside. Now we can make some adjustments for the seeing. There are some things that we can do now that we couldn't do 50 or 100 years ago that can take some of this into account. And that is what we call active and adaptive optics. So what they start to do is instead build thinner mirrors. Instead of having a mirror that's you know, the size of this room, but if, oh, it's got to be this thick, and that's a massive mirror, they make really thin mirrors, almost a floppy mirror, that can then be distorted. And they also build segmented mirrors. Instead of building one gigantic mirror, you can imagine trying to transport something up to a mountaintop where your observatory is that's you know, wider than the highway. How do you transport it there? Well, one of the ways that they do that is by making them in segments. So little hexagonal segments, little honeycomb segments, and you put them all together. And you can make one giant mirror out of a bunch of little mirrors. There also could be computer controlled. Right? We take that for granted now, but it wasn't that long ago that computer control was very expensive and very difficult. If you talk 50, 60 years ago, that would have been really hard. Nowadays, not a big deal. You can put little pistons beside the mirror and you can distort it. And that's the example of what's being shown here. No, we're not attacking the galaxy, shooting a laser out at it. 
we're actually shooting a laser up into the upper atmosphere. That excites the atoms in the upper atmosphere and causes them to glow. Now, since we shot the laser there, we know what type of light is exciting those atoms. We know what types of atoms are up there, what kind of what their light should look like coming back. So we know exactly what this essentially this artificial star that we're making should look like. When it comes back and doesn't look like that, computer can invert all that and say, well, here's the problem with the atmosphere. It inverts that and it distorts the mirror. Instead of a nice smooth flat mirror, you have a distorted mirror that takes into account all of that. So you can actually clear up the image. And that means that you can actually get rid, essentially get rid of the atmosphere effects in terms of observing, in terms of what you're observing. So you can actually bring objects that were blurry, even on a turbulent night. You know, the less the turbulence, the better, because it's very hard to do this perfectly. You're trying to do it in real time. And of course, the atmosphere is constantly changing. It's not the same this instant as it was an instant before. But you can still eliminate a lot of the effects that we see. So that's what a lot of the modern telescopes actually use. Now in terms of looking at some modern telescopes, I have a bunch of pictures to show you of some of these. Um, This for the longest time was the largest telescope in the world. Uh, This was the Mount Palomar telescope. So outside of uh, Los Angeles in California. Not a good place to put a telescope. Nowadays, but back in the 1940s, it wasn't such a big deal. It was completed there up on the mountains there. It's not in the city or anything, but it's outside of the city. Uh, But this is an example of a 200-inch telescope. In this case, the telescope itself is right down here. So that's actually the mirror. It's looking straight up at this point. So it's looking straight overhead. This whole device is the moving mechanism. Now this is about 200 inches, about 5 meters across the size of the mirror. So 5 meters would be what? About a little over 5 yards times about 18 feet across. Try to give you something. I know, I know 5 meters doesn't necessarily mean a lot to a lot of people. So like 18 feet across. That's a big mirror to be able to have to be able to move. And that's a lot of glass. This is long before any of those floppy mirrors or anything else that I just talked about. So this is actually a big solid piece of glass. That is, you know, many times the size of a person. Now you could lay a couple people, you know, head to foot across this mirror. You wouldn't want to because you'd damage the mirror, but you size-wise, you have several people's worth of mirror size. So you really kind of get how to get that sense of scale as to how large this telescope is. It's actually big enough that there is an observing cage up here, and that was used. An observer could actually get in there, ride with their instruments at that prime focus at the, up in the telescope and could stay up there all night and observe. Again, most of the time that's not done anymore, but when you have something this large, you actually can fit a person in there. So this is one. This is the older of the ones that I'm going to look at. Some of the others that I want to do are a little more modern telescopes. This was completed in 2000. This is what we call very inventive names for some of these. I hope you see very large telescope. Or VLT, sometimes it's called. This is actually down in Chile. And it's a set of four telescopes. Each of those is eight meters in size. So each of those is much bigger than the Palomar telescope that we looked, the Hale telescope on Palomar that we looked at. This was only five meters. These are eight meters. And there's four of them here. They can actually be used together or individually. So you can look at, look at the same object with all of them, simulating an even bigger telescope, essentially. And we'll look at that in a little bit. Or you could look at different objects with each of them. 
But that's a good idea of some how large some of these are getting. This was just 2,000. So we're only talking 18 years ago. Yeah, sorry. No, there are four 8.2 meters. There are four telescopes. Each of them is 8.2 meters. And again, when it comes to the test, I'm not going to quiz you on you know, exact sizes or dates. I don't like you to have to try to memorize that kind of stuff. But yeah, but there's four. But four for total, so total area is really, really big compared to what we have. The other thing is, you know, the one was five meters and the one is eight meters. You know, big deal. But remember, the area of the telescope, which tells you how faint you can see, goes as the size squared. So it's actually many times more, a lot more light that you're able to gather with these than you are with this telescope. But this was, until the 1970s, this was like the largest telescope in the world for about three decades, this one. And then more recently, we've actually built a lot more. So the very large telescope is one. There's the large binocular telescope. And guess why it got its name? You got two telescopes side by side looking out like a pair of binoculars. Uh, this was done in, two, in uh, 2004, which is about, they were slightly bigger. But again, you can, use the, you can use them to look together like a pair of binoculars. So instead of building one even bigger telescope, and it gets tough when you're trying to build a big telescope, those mirrors get hard to build. Right? Galileo only had to grind little lenses that were in, an inch or less in size. If we're trying to make a mirror that is you know, eight meters in size, that's tough. But if you wanted to make it even bigger, to combine the area, it's even harder. And it's harder to control. Your control mechanism to move that gets a lot more difficult to create. So astronomers have found that doing things like this, splitting the telescopes up into these kind of things, is a lot more efficient. It's cheaper than building a, say, what, an, uh, uh, this is an eight meter, these are eight meter telescopes. So putting two eight meter telescopes together instead of building a 10 or 12 meter telescope, it's a lot cheaper to do this. That doesn't mean that we don't do it. Uh, this is actually the one that was completed in 2007. This is a 10 meter telescope. Uh, the Grand Telescopio Canarias. Uh, that has one mirror that is 10 meters across. So again, meters about a yard, meters a little more than a yard. So you're talking 30, 35 feet across. That's a massive mirror in terms of size. Now they use a lot of that technology that I've said in terms of making it less thick. So it's not like a telescope that's this thick. It's not a horrendous piece of glass. But it still is massive in terms of size. And that I believe is one of the largest because I'm thinking uh, the other ones that are being worked on, again, they love the naming. Astronomers don't always give them nice fancy names. This is the European Extremely Large Telescope. So we have the very large telescope. It's the extremely large telescope. It's actually bigger than that. This is in progress and projected to be completed uh, middle of the next decade, 2025. I didn't double check that to update if they'd had an update on that. But. And that's going to be almost 40 meters across. 40, if you do a meter is about a yard, you're talking about half a football field for the size of the telescope. I mean, that's gigantic. Going from, going from goal line to midfield. That would be how, how big the diameter of this telescope. So again, they keep doing this because the bigger the telescope, the more detail you're able to see and the more light and the fainter objects you're able to gather. So these are just a few examples of some of those different, different telescopes. There's a lot more. I wanted to kind of jump ahead and show you one that's still 
being worked on. This obviously is this is more of a planning picture, a planning drawing, not an actual image of it because it's not, not built yet. So where are we going to put a telescope? When we want to build telescopes, where are we going to put them? There's a couple things that we want to look at. First of all, the weather. I mean, long ago, telescopes were built where the astronomers were. That's why I said the one was outside of Los Angeles. That makes sense. You know, you've got all big universities right there. You've got a telescope right by them. It's convenient for the astronomers. Uh, the large refracting telescope that I told you about in the late 1800s, that was built right out of Chicago. It's just north of Chicago. Right? Late 1800s, you know, electricity was brand new, so it wasn't all that bright. Nowadays, if you want to try to look towards Chicago, if you go to Chicago and try to look up and see any stars, you're going to have fun, right, trying to see anything even close to Chicago. So the other thing is that they were built near that. You know, if you have telescopes in Chicago, Boston, New York, the weather tends to be pretty poor in those. Um, and in fact, you know, you want clear weather, so telescopes now are actually made, put further away from the astronomers. Now the astronomers have to travel to be able to observe, to observe. Inconvenience there, but if you think about it, if you have a telescope outside of Chicago, right? Chicago weather isn't all that different than ours, right? It's, you know, you might get, let's see, 360 days in a year, you might get, you know, 120 nice clear days at night. And I mean nice clear days, not partly cloudy where you could see some stars. It doesn't do an astronomer much good if a cloud comes through in the middle of their observations. It's got to be pretty much crystal clear. So maybe 100 or 120 really perfectly clear nights. Whereas if you can take it down to the desert in Arizona, you can now see what? A lot more days. You might get 200, 250, 280 out of 365. Most of the nights will be clear. So. We want places that are going to have clear weather. The other thing that they do is put them up high. So telescopes are often up on mountaintops. That helps with a couple of things. First of all, it helps with the weather because you could have a point. If you've got a high enough mountain, you can have the weather down below you. You can have the cloud layers down below you. Hey, and for you, it's nice and clear. The people on the ground below the mountain might be have cloudy day. But you're up above it, you can see just fine if you're on a high enough mountain. So we do this in the Southern Rockies. Down in Arizona, there are a lot of telescopes put down there. Out in Hawaii, on Mauna Kea, the high mountains, there's a lot of stuff. You can get up above the atmosphere. You get up above a lot of the atmosphere and above a lot of the weather, which really helps. So that helps get more clear weather. Doesn't mean you're, you're perfect. right? You're always going to have cloudy weather. You're always going to have storms that come through. But it can help. The other thing we want to do is to avoid the water vapor. Water vapor will absorb some of the light. So when we look at that, the water vapor will actually be absorbing some of the light that we see. And that causes problems. That's why, again, we look at mountains, get up above a lot of the atmosphere. So that really helps us get up above, get up above the atmosphere a lot more. Um, avoiding the water vapor. So even though I say we put telescopes, I said the desert, which makes sense with that, but I also said put them in Hawaii. You think they're right in the middle of the ocean. But you know what? The top of those mountains is really dry. There's not a, even though you're in the middle of the ocean, the water vapor is not up that high. So you actually are above a lot of the water vapor being up high on the mountain. Now if you tried to put something down lower on Hawaii, wouldn't work too well. Um, you also need dark skies. I kind of mentioned that already. You don't want to be near a city. So we don't put modern telescopes near large cities, um, et cetera, uh, near Chicago, near Boston, near uh, 
Baltimore, you know, any large city, you don't, you don't put a telescope there anymore. They're all put out in uh, desert areas, really low population areas. So you don't want to put them near the cities. And you need good seeing. You need to be able to have very little atmosphere to look through. That's one of the other reasons we put them up on the high mountains to be able to see. All right, so finish up the first section there. That was the biggest section of this. But just to summarize the main points of what we looked at, we use the telescopes to gather light and bring it to a focus. That's the whole purpose of a telescope, is to gather more light from an object and to bring it to a focus. Um, the powers we talked about, light gathering power, resolving power, and magnifying power. These two important, that one really unimportant in terms of when you're looking at, if you're actually looking at buying a telescope, you don't want to look at something just for magnifying power. And then modern telescopes, we can make them a lot thinner. You've got computer control, which is now almost instantaneous. So we can make them a lot thinner and larger than previous telescopes. That's why for a long time that 200 inch telescope at Mount Palomar for decades was the largest telescope. And that was a big advance. That had gone from a 100 inch telescope that was the previous largest to a 200 inch telescope. It was a jump. But then it took decades before we got anything larger than that. It took a number of decades before, it until, the seven, not until the late 70s that we actually got anything larger than that. Now, Again, as technology has improved, computer control, we can actually make telescopes that are thinner. The mirrors flex more, but if you have computer control to keep that shape proper, pistons on the back, you can hold it in shape, the way shape you want it. All right, so questions on optical telescopes. Before we jump into detectors, how do we actually detect the light? All right. Well, the first way, first, the earliest astronomical detectors, and this would be everything from ancient, ancient naked eye observations, just looking at the stars even before the telescope, even from the time of Galileo, right? The earliest detector was your eye. That's all you had. And this was the case up until uh, the mid 1800s. That was all you had, was your eye. So essentially, these are some sketches from Galileo made of the moon through his telescope. So different phases, different portions illuminated, but he had to sketch them. And if you look at them, you know, features don't look exactly the same from one to the other. Right? You see some darker features here that are not present in this one. And you might see some features here along the edge that aren't on the edge here or features here. There's differences, right? If you go out and draw something, especially if you draw like me, you know, it's not going to look the same every single time you draw it. Or if you had, if we had a telescope and we put it at the moon and I had everybody look through and make a sketch, none of them would look exactly the same. The overall features would hopefully look generally the same, but the details would not be the same. So that is really, that was the earliest form and that was for the first couple hundred years that we had telescopes. It was an astronomer sitting at the telescope looking through it with a sketch pad, drawing and making notes as to what they saw. And of course, it would vary. One person would see things, someone else wouldn't. If your eyes are a little bit better, your telescope is a little bit better, you might be able to see things that someone else couldn't. So there'd be some differences there. The other thing that was used after that uh, started in the mid-1800s as photography was starting to develop, uh, about the mid-1800s. First astronomical photographs were of only very bright objects. And you could use what they called a photographic plate. 
So not like the film that we used to use, which was a plastic piece that had the photographic emulsion. These are actually plates, which are pieces of glass. There we go. Which was actually a piece of glass, maybe a square or a circle, that had a, fo- a light sensitive emulsion on it that you could then expose to the sky and collect the light. Now that's a big update. So that's a big upgrade over what you'd been able to see before. Because you were depending on your eye, which is subjective. What do you see? What does someone else see? And we might see some of this when we talk about Mars in a little bit. Well, not today, but I mean coming up next month. Um, Mars, early observations of Mars, sketches on it. People saw, thought they saw canals or they saw other things on Mars that we now know really weren't there. But because people were, it was all very subjective, it was only what you could actually, what you could see with your eye. So we then went for a long time to photographic plates. And again, it's just a piece of glass, thin piece of, ordinary piece of glass, but you make it a photographic sensitive emulsion on one side and then you can expose it to the sky and take an image. This is what it would look like. It's always going to look like a negative print. If you're wondering why is it dark stars on bright object, on a bright background, that's typically what you will see with that. So where, it, where, it, where there was light, that darkens the emulsion after you develop it. And where it was dark, nothing happened and it stays bright. A lot of astronomical pictures look like that. this. They invert them when they tend to publicize things. They make them what we're used to looking at, which would be dark on light. But really, if you look at a dark object on a light background, it's a lot easier to pick it out. The detail shows out more. If I could invert this and show it the same thing with a light on, with dark background with light star, bright stars on it, it would be a lot harder to see the fine detail. Because your eyes are better adapted to being able to see things like this. You know, why do we do writing, right? If you read a book, it's a light colored page with the dark writing on it, not the other way around. Your eyes work a lot better the, this way around. But we're used to looking at pictures, you know, what, it's not what the night sky looks like because the night sky is dark with all these bright objects on it. These are also extremely inefficient. You're recording about 1% of the light that hits. It's still better than your eye. But you could also leave these exposed for a longer time. Right? You can take a camera, you can point it at the sky, and you can open the shutter and just let it expose. Your eye only sees instantaneously, whatever light you get, and it constantly is changing. This could be left open for minutes, hours, and you'd be able to then see fainter objects because you're tracking more and more light. So it was another big advantage, big advantage of them was that you could see fainter objects than you'd be able to see with your eye. So your eye looking at this might pick out these brighter stars, some of these brighter objects, but all this faint little material wouldn't be visible. Some of the other problems with it is storage, right? And we get we get we don't get used to this today because everything's digital, right? You take a picture, it's stored on your phone, it's stored on your computer, it's you know it's all digital, it's just a digital file. It's very easy to store, but this is actually a piece of glass that is needs to be kept temperature sensitive. If it gets too hot, you can damage the emulsion. If it gets too cold, you can freeze and start cracking it. So they had to be kept temperature controlled. We still have them. There are a ton of plates that still exist that were taken over the early part of the 1900s into the mid and later part of the 1900s. They're still very important because we have all that historical data that was recorded that we can't go back. I can't take a modern detector and go see what this object looked like in 1920. 
But I can go pull out a plate from 1920 and see what it is. And in fact, there's been a lot of work done to digitize all of these to actually be able to store, you know, scan them essentially and have all that data now recorded digitally. The other problem with it, again, storage was a difficulty, is that it's hard to share the data. So if you're working in Boston and you want to share it with a colleague in San Francisco, you know, what would you do? And again, we're going back decades again. We're talking there, you know, you could call them and describe it to them. You could um, what, take a picture of it and send it and send that to them, or you could send them the plate. But again, that's difficulty in trying to get something from one to another. Now, of course, it's something we don't consider today because what do you do? Well, you have the digital image here. Here, send this file, take a look at it, and see what you think. And you can send it to someone across the country or across the world. And again, that's what they're working on on a lot of these old plates because there is a lot of good information still on them because it's older records that we can't get. Now, Nowadays, it's the charge coupled device, which you've got in your cell phone or digital camera. That's what's used now. It's actually a light sensitive uh, material here. This is actually the light sensitive part, is this inner square. And then the rest of it is just readout, is all of the readout there. So that's what we use nowadays. It's much more sensitive. So they can collect you know, 80, 90% of the light that's hitting them. Instead of 1%, that's a big difference in terms of if you're looking at something that's faint, you're able to get a lot more detail out of it. So much more sensitive than what you were previously able to get. And again, that's what's used today. And again, the convenience, right? I can take an image tonight at a telescope with something like this. I could send it to someone, a friend or a colleague across the country and get their input right away. So if I want to compare something, if I'm observing it in, at there and I send it across the world to someone, okay, send it to your office here. What does this image look like? What should I take? I can now look at another image. That was the other difficulty I didn't mention with photographic plates. You had to develop them. And I don't know how many people remember, you know, old film that you had to send out to be developed. Well, that's what an astronomical observing run used to be. You'd take all your plates at the end of the night, you'd have to take them and go develop them. Wasn't like it, you, know, you get so used to now, click an image, I don't like that one, let me take another one. Right? You do that with your cell phone all the time. That image didn't come out good, delete, do another one. Never used to be like that, you know, even just a few decades ago. You take pictures with film, you'd have to send the film out to get developed. And if your vacation photos didn't come out very well, they didn't come out very well. Nowadays, of course, you know, you can take it and take another image right away. So that's some of the technology that has increased drastically, and a lot of it was driven by science and astronomy in terms of trying to get bigger and more accurate detectors being able to be able to record more and more data kind of led to a lot of this that now becomes general use. So how does this work? Well, what we have is the light strikes the surface and produces electrons. So the light strikes this surface here. This, this is the light sensitive surface and produces electrons. I exaggerated. I said it was a little better. 60 to still two-thirds of the, that's a heck of a lot better than 1%. That's like 60 times, 60, 65 times better on average. So you can see a lot fainter objects. So very, very efficient. You're not getting every electron being detected or every photon being detected, but when a photon piece of particle of light strikes that image, it essentially puts an electron into a little bin at one spot on that. You talk about pixels, how many pixels it has, square size. It puts an electron into that pixel. And then at the end of the exposure, you count those. Five electrons in this one, 20 electrons in this one, zero in this one, 10. 
And the more electrons, the brighter image. The fewer electrons, the fainter that part of the image. And you put those all together. You know, it's like you know, color by all the numbers. You get all the numbers together, and that puts your image together at the end. So when you talk about this, can we have large CCDs that can have hundreds, astronomical ones or hundreds of megapixels? What do we do now? Like can't phones or what? 12, 10, 12, 14, I'm not even sure what the limits are now. But I mean, 10 or, 10 or so megapixels, just say. Uh, but you can actually have ones that are hundreds of megapixels now. So you know, what technology is coming? Well, astronomers want bigger and bigger CCDs to be able to see larger parts of the sky. So that's an important thing for them. To be able to have more and more, be able to get larger and larger. That's still one of the disadvantages of the CCD. It's got so many great advantages, but they're still small. Whereas a plate can be, you know, inches in size. You can get a whole big chunk of the sky. We're getting close there. We'll be getting there very soon, but we can actually do that with the CCD. And again, digi it's digital. So I can email it to a colleague across the country, across the world, immediately, and say, here, what do you think of this? What should I do for my observing tomorrow night that might build on this, that I might be able to see something else or look at something in more detail? So the advantage of it all being digital is just like now, right? You take a picture and you text it to your friend. You know, you do that instantly. It's not like it used to be, you know, when I was in under, when I was an undergraduate, where you took the picture, you had the film, you took the film out to be developed, you got your pictures back, you know, a week later or whatever. And then you could, then you still had to, how do you share it with somebody across the country? You can mail them a copy, right? You know, again, not going back that long. We're just talking, you know, a few decades. That it's made it a lot, made a lot, lot easier. So that's taking images. So images right now, a lot easier to take with the CCD like that. But the other thing that we want to look at is the spectro is spectroscopy. is splitting up the light into its colors. So we can use a device, and there's a couple different kinds of ways that we can do this. A prism is the commonly known one. So if you take light and you send it through a prism, it splits it up into all the colors of the rainbow. There's some other lenses here to help focus it, but the whole idea is when it comes through this shape, this triangular shaped piece of glass, it splits the light into the colors of the rainbow. So different wavelengths are bet, bent by different amounts. So blue light gets bent a lot and comes out down here. Red light gets bent a little and is up here. So we can then take a picture of that. We've now spread out the light. That tells us about a lot about what this object would be made of. What is this star? What is this planet? What is this galaxy made of? We can learn things about the motion. And I can't tell if something's moving astronomically by looking at an image of it. It's just a static image. I can't tell how it's moving. Distant objects, when we talk about galaxies, we can't even see them, their motions over a lifetime or over a dozen lifetimes. We wouldn't be able to see them actually moving. But we could learn about things about the motion, how they're moving by looking at the spectrum. That's the Doppler effect, right? We looked at that. How things are moving shifts the lines. We looked at that last time. We can look at the temperatures. Right? Remember where the peak, where the peak of the spectrum is tells us something about the temperature. So a hotter object will have a peak closer to the blue, a cooler object will have a peak closer to the red. You can use that to measure the temperatures of objects. Again, I can't get that by just looking at it, just taking a picture of an object. I need some kind of spectrum of it. I need to split it up into its components' colors. And we can learn about the composition. What is something made up of? So what is the composition of this object? Well, we can look at the spectral lines. 
Does it have lines of hydrogen? Then there must be hydrogen of it. Does it have lines of helium? Then there's helium. If it has carbon, there's carbon. If it has oxygen, there's oxygen. So we can learn what things are made up of. And this is very important astronomically because these are things we can't just directly measure. You know, here on Earth, if I want to do a physics experiment or a chemistry experiment, you know, I can measure what things are made up of. Right? I can take it apart, I can do some studies right here and find out, oh, it's made up of this and this. I can actually experiment with it. If I want to find the temperature of something, right? I've got a thermometer, I can stick in it, find out what the temperature is. If I want to measure how something's moving, right? radar devices, you have ways to be able to measure that. When we start talking about stars and galaxies coming up, we can't do any of that. You know, we don't have a way other than using their spectrum, other than using their light to be able to determine those uh, things. So, finishing up on detectors here. Um, again, they make a permanent record essentially. We're getting a permanent record of objects uh, out in space. So we have the idea of a detector. You know, the eye couldn't do this other than your drawings. But now you can make a permanent record through either photographic plates or CCD images that you're able to get. Uh, the modern ones, again, are the charge coupled devices and that's what you use. That's what you use in your cameras, your phone to be able to take images. And that will record images dig digitally. It can be images. It could also be the spectra. Right? We're splitting up the light here. You could put a CCD here and record the image digitally as well. And again, that's a lot of what's done right now. And the idea is that now that they're all digital or being digitized, if you're scanning old plates, they're now able to be shared and studied by astronomers in different locations. So if you think about this, you know, not that long ago, 60, 70 years, you know, this, this observatory had their collection of plates and they were all stored in a nice control, climate controlled room on their observatory. But if someone else wanted to observe it, from a, to study those from across the country, they then had to travel to get them. So again, being able to have things digital is a big change and it's something that is relatively recent. Not just for astronomers, but for everybody. Right? A few decades ago you wanted to share pictures with someone else. You couldn't just you know, share, send them a picture like you do today. All right, uh, let's see. Next section is radio telescopes. It's the next section we want to look at. This is the first new type of telescope that we're going to look at. They're like the visible light, they're actually able to get through the atmosphere. So most light cannot get through the atmosphere, most, most types of light can't get through the atmosphere. Visible light and radio light will. So um, these are examples, it looks like a big satellite dish, which is essentially what it is, but it's detecting radio waves from space. So the nice thing is, again, you can put these on the ground, here on the ground with a little control room down here, and you can now detect radio waves. This is a big difference. This, is, this, is, this, this was great in the 1930s when this, when this was being developed. First, this was an entirely new view of the universe. Everything we looked at before was visible light. Remember a week ago, I know, the electromagnetic spectrum, we had that big long spectrum and you had this little tiny portion that was visible light. Now we're getting another window. We're seeing the universe in a different type of light. And that's important because things don't look the same when we look at them in radio waves. If we look at the sun in radio waves, it looks a lot different than it does in visible light. If we look at a galaxy in radio waves, it looks a lot different because we're learning more about the object. The radio waves it gives off are made by different processes than the visible light was. 
Now the key there is again radio waves are not sound waves. There's a big difference between radio waves and sound waves. Radio waves are electromagnetic radiation. They're just like light. They can travel through a vacuum. Sound waves cannot travel through a vacuum. Um, we use radio waves to transmit, to encode sound here on Earth. So if you have a radio, AM, FM radio, that is done, what you do is you adjust the radio waves then transmit and you carry on the radio wave the signal of the sound and then your radio decodes it. So the radio station broadcasts it, your radio then decodes that. And it makes adjustments either to the amplitude of the waves, which is AM, amplitude modulation, changes the amplitude, how big and high the waves are of the radio waves. Or you can modulate their frequency, FM, frequency modulation is based on changing the frequency a little bit. And then the transmitter transmits it, the decoder in your radio knows how to decode that and can turn the information carried on the radio waves into sound. So radio waves are quite different than what you actually would listen to a sound wave. If the sun were to emit sound waves, which it does out there, we can't get them. They can't travel through the vacuum. Sound waves cannot travel through a vacuum to the earth. So we can see evidence of sound waves like on the sun, where sound may have occurred, but there's no way for us to ever hear it because it can't travel that intervening distance through the empty space. If you had a great explosion on the moon, right, large impact, big, you could see, you could see it occur, just say. You'd never hear it because the sound couldn't travel through the vacuum between the Earth and the moon. So you could see the explosion, but you'd never be able to hear it. So radio uh, sound waves need something to travel through, whether it be a gas like the atmosphere or a solid you can, they can travel through, but they can't travel through empty space. So that's a difference I wanted to emphasize between what we mean by radio waves that we're we are detecting from space and the sound waves that we sometimes uh, misassociate with them. Now very early radio astronomy started out